Kia ora, this is The Detail. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Despite women holding 21% of elected offices uh, around the world in real life, only 10% of the characters who were politicians on screen were female. So in other words, however abysmal the numbers are in real life, it's far worse in fiction, where you make it up. It can be anything you want. Let's make it worse than the sad numbers in real life. Who wouldn't want to go to a conference featuring Gina Davis, you know, the Thelma of Thelma and Louise fame? But when I saw the title, The Power of Inclusion, I rolled my eyes. But I went along with our associate producer, Kathaki Masalamani. Kathaki, what did you think? Well, I was really excited to go because I saw that Yara Shahidi was on the uh, one of the headliners. And uh, I know her from shows like Blackish and Grownish and, to be honest, Instagram. And she's so fabulous. I was just excited to see what she had to say. The power of inclusion is the essentialness of inclusion. Inclusion is no longer something that you can add on to or do on the side or something you should be high-fived for. It's something that we genuinely have to take in as a mission statement. Yeah, I have to admit, I'd never heard of her until then, but she's only 19 and so eloquent. So anyway, we went down there and the Prime Minister hit the stage at 9am. I still remember my first year as a Member of Parliament. In fact, I remember once going to an event alongside a group of colleagues who it would be fair to say had been in the profession a lot longer than I had. And I'd not long walked into this large um, meeting room and stood amongst the other MPs when the meeting organiser came over and asked me how my male colleagues uh, had their tea and whether or not I could help prepare it. And by the end of the day, I was bowled over. Like many people in this room, I um, am kind of sick of the words diversity, inclusion, representation, because I feel like they don't mean that much anymore unless there's meaningful action behind them. We've heard that cliche that uh, diversity is inviting someone to your party and inclusion is asking them to dance. But my problem with this metaphor is that by asking someone to dance, you still hold the power as the host. You determine the music, the venue, uh, the context and the rules, and you can always kick people out if they don't adhere to your rules. The only reason why you have diversity and inclusion is because the power holders have granted it to you. You know, that's not sovereignty. That's not self-determination. That's, hey, we're doing you guys a favour. And the nature of a favour is like, well, now I owe you something. Get to know disabled people. Get to know who we are in a complex way, in a deep way, and bring us on. Don't just invite us in, as people have been saying, but allow us to build the house. We just seem to be operating in a time now where organisations and institutions are constantly trying to leverage away from us our cultural capital in exchange for platforms that are mostly built to entertain Pakeha people. And Kathaki, they were pretty powerful. They were direct, they were open and they were honest. And some of them were actually saying it's just too expensive for them to be here. Yes, and this was a conference organised by the New Zealand Film Commission and Women in Film and Television. And they called in some big shots. Gina Davis, Nikki Caro, Magda Jovansky. 
But actually, the ones who really stood out for me were those young up-and-coming artists. They weren't afraid to tell the truth about what it's like working in the industry here. The concept of inclusivity is cool. Like, I like it, yes. But inclusion still implies that the person who's doing the including has all the power, the complete control over the situation. They're including you out of their own graciousness and kindness. To a certain degree, it becomes tokenistic. Inclusion has become almost dated in in its function, you know, and, and it's been a good step, yes, absolutely, and I admire those initiatives that are there to empower it. However, I think the conversation's moved on beyond inclusion. That was Heperi Mitter, or Hepi. You've probably heard of his dad, director Jeff Murphy, and you might have heard of his mother, Mirata Mitter, the filmmaker and activist. Heppi's made a film about her called Mirata, How Mum Decolonized the Screen. And one of the things that really struck me about what he was saying was the thousands that he had to pay for his own mother's work. When I went to use extracts of Koha in the documentary about my mother, the initial quote that I received for the licensing fees in order to clear the rights to use those clips was far greater than what my budget could afford. As a filmmaker, this is a challenge, but as my mother's son, I was outraged. I couldn't believe I had to pay thousands of dollars for my mother's own work, for my mother's own words, for my mother's own image. This wasn't just limited to koha and television. This was across the board in all of my mum's filmography. My mum was a prolific documentarian in the 80s, and at that time, there's not too many photo albums of my family. So the various cameos of my older siblings in her films are like my photo album. And when I was using those images to illustrate their stories about growing up with our mother, I had to pay at least one other rights holders to use the images of my own family. I wanted to talk to him more about this. So uh, we stepped outside of the conference, found a quiet space and got to it. You spoke about trying to buy your own mother's footage. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, of course, you know, when you're making a documentary and and you want it to be an international release, because my mum was an international figure. She found her audiences um, amongst other indigenous communities overseas. So when I was making the film, I knew I wanted to continue in that tradition. Mm. So purchasing the rights for something for international rights immediately bumps up the tier of, of pricing in terms of clearing and paying for licensing fees because a lot of her work was done in collaboration with Television New Zealand mm-hmm. or with other filmmakers of her era the rights holding situation is split up between different people so to use my mum's own work mm-hmm. I have to pay other people to use her work and um, sometimes these expenses are crippling Actually, like I would say the majority of our budget went to clearing licensing fees. As a filmmaker, that's challenging. But for me, as my mother's son, it seems absurd. Like it's outrageous. You know, it's like, but this is my mum. And not only is it my mum, in my documentary, I talk to a lot of my older siblings because they were around, they were kids while my mum was an activist. They appear in all of her films. So to use images of them when they were children... Yeah, I was forking out thousands of dollars. That's personal for me. You know, I, I can't view that, that particular dilemma 
with any objectivity. But that kind of summarizes the situation for Māori in this industry. We work as contractors, Mm -hmm. and our work is owned by the companies that we work for or the producers that we work for. And it's your stories. Not only our stories. Like, there's no images of my older siblings and their kids. They're all, like, no photo albums, you know? I mean, they're very, very rare. But Mm. there are a lot of cameos of them in my mum's work. Mm. So for me, that is, like, my family photo album. So imagine, like, wanting to share your family photo album with someone and having to pay another person, like, a couple hundred dollars every time you wanted to do Mm. that. When you entered this industry... Did you feel like you had a space in it? Well, yes. And, I, you know, I kind of spoke to that in my speech. Like, I have this imposter syndrome when I speak at these things because I'm, I'm fair-skinned, you know. Like, I look just like a white dude, you know. So I, I start out, I always speak Māori when I begin, just so it's like, hey, guys, you know, <laughs> fly the flag. O te mea tuatahi, he mihi tēnei, ki ngā uri o ngāti whātua, i pōwhiri mai i a mātou, i tō koutou whenua, tēnā koutou. And also, I compare my situation to that of my mum's. Like, when I started, I'm in my early 20s, I've got no kids, I've got opportunities, and there's policies within the Film Commission and funding streams to promote inclusivity, mm-hmm. and I can take advantage of those. Mm-hmm. So I've never felt like an outsider, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I look at the archival footage of my mum and she's talking about having five kids, being a solo brown woman, mm-hmm. having to deal with sexism, having to deal with prejudice. And, um, you know, it makes me realise, like, OK, I am so privileged. Mm-hmm. Because in my mother's time, it was almost, um, almost black and white in that it was very obvious, like, the door was getting kicked down, dogs were in the house searching for films, and, you know, there was physical violence being dished out to those who were standing up for the rights of minority groups. Today, it's not like that. It's not as confrontational. You know, now it's almost like a battle between different PR agencies, and so they have good PR policies that have a diversity and inclusionary function, but that aren't necessarily honouring the true intent. The intentions are good, but the outcomes are still marginalisation. But it's just marginalisation with a smiley face. You said Māori don't have the funds to be activists? Um, or was that...? Yeah, I, I believe... Māori it, can't afford to be activists. activists. Yeah, yeah, because if you are going from contract to contract and you speak up about something that you disagree with, the person is not going to hire you again. They don't have to hire you again because it's a competitive industry. So you just keep your mouth shut and you go from job to job to job. And that's just the economic condition of this industry. So what are you meant to do? You know, you're, you're as trapped in a cycle. It's all well and good to have an event like this, but let's be honest and recognise that the ones of us who are here have the privilege to participate in these events and I you know I don't mean to I don't mean to disparage anybody who has had to make compromise because that's the reality of of working in the media industry Um, and that's a hard thing to do as well yeah and and at the end of the day most people who work in this industry their primary goal is to pay their bills and to feed their families therefore activism will take 
a second step. You know, political action is the secondary priority if it is a priority at all. So it's, it's very hard, and I understand that. I understand people have had to make those compromises. My mother's made those compromises in her, in her career, in her early career. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a very challenging situation. Yeah, it's, it's complicated. It's complicated. Although exclusion doesn't occur necessarily on the basis of identity, it is now part of an economic cycle that keeps Maori and other minorities subservient. And there are a few individuals who have inspirationally broken that mold. And there are bastions such as this forum that fight and stand for inclusion. However, on the coalface of it, when you look at the industry more widespread, it is rare that those resources and those initiatives reach the ones who need it the most. And you need look no further than this very forum as evidence of that, as I know there are many Māori in this industry who can't afford to be here today. Cost was a huge barrier, and I know many of my peers couldn't attend because of the $500 price ticket. And I myself wouldn't have come if I wasn't invited, and maybe they're regretting that now. Um... You and Julie Zhu mentioned boldly that a lot of your peers can't be here because the, of the price of this Power of Inclusion Summit. On one hand, I really applaud them for taking that criticism and allowing people to speak to it and mm -hmm. not, you know, I haven't, as of yet, received any yeah. backlash for making my statement. But I think it highlights a bigger thing, and that is inclusion is available with those with the privilege who can earn it. Mm -hmm. But the ones who would most benefit from inclusion are the ones who potentially can't afford a $500 ticket to come to these types of things. The contractors in this film industry who have to go from job to job to job can't afford the time or the money to come to these things. And unfortunately, the weird dynamic that that sets up is if they're a minority, they would be the ones most likely to benefit from participation in these types of events. And so this is actually, it's an economic exclusion. And those who suffer the most economically also happen to be minorities. This is across all our funding agencies, and a lot of this is historic, but it still sometimes happens even today and this year, that are made to promote Maori stories on the screen. Um, and they do, but the way they do this is they give their funding to non-Māori-owned production companies so mm -hmm. that they'll pay you know, a big budget, a big mover and shaker within the industry to do this. On the surface, that's amazing, you know, and it's good, and, and Māori contractors do get paid to do their jobs and to tell stories. But at the end of the day, those companies own the intellectual property mm. of those stories. Mm. It's no longer in Māori hands. A lot of those companies are actually foreign-owned production companies. Mm. So... Māori intellectual property is actually going overseas and benefiting people who live in the UK and Los Angeles mm. and things like that. There was a funny quote actually yesterday. If we can't profit from our own trauma, what's the point in, in doing this? The big issue is that while contractors are going out, intellectual property is going overseas. At the same time, infrastructure is not getting built for Māori and other minority groups to be able to handle that level of production. That money and that power is still collectively held by a small group of people, and it is very rare that they are Māori, let alone any minority. 
do you see change happening from inclusion summits like this? Ask me the same question in a year from now and I'll have a better answer for you. Mm. What I do think it has done successfully is raised awareness. Mm. I could say that in my own experience too because I've learned a lot of things about different communities in New Zealand that I didn't know anything about. I talked to a guy who was asking for advice because uh, he wanted to make a documentary about resettlement of of refugees and the funding that he applied for he couldn't get because he's not yet a New Zealand citizen. Mm -hmm. So things of that nature have been really eye-opening for me. I hope, you know, maybe I'm optimistic, maybe I'm naive, I hope that from these types of conversations that those policies can change and that we do have more opportunity, more empowerment, and more control for minority storytellers in in this country. Whether or not that actually happens is yet to be seen. The thing that stood out to me from this conference is that the overseas speakers had such a glowing view of New Zealand, our openness, our inclusion, and lots of references to New Zealanders' response to the March 15 Christchurch massacre. But New Zealand speakers were much more critical of their own treatment by the industry and the way it works. But the person who really stood out for me, who who made it so memorable for me, I have to say, was this one. Look at me. (laughs) Now, I'm at a bit of a disadvantage because you know my name. Or you think you know my name. You probably know me as Magda, maybe Magna Zabansky. It's actually pronounced Magda Shubansky. So if you could just, after me please, Magda Shubansky. She was funny, but she also ended with a word of warning to New Zealand. So a lot of people know Poland now as the sort of prototypical Eastern European basket case. Um, a repository of homophobia, anti-Semitism, xenophobia and a very right-wing country where they are trying to control the narrative of history. But what you don't know is that centuries ago, in the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, Poland was the New Zealand of its time. It was inclusive. They invited the Jews in and protected them. The Jews had a great deal of their own governance. It was actually known as the Jewish paradise. Uh, It was multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multicultural, a very tolerant society. Cut to the 20th century, and Poland is a country whose name is synonymous with death camps and anti-Semitism. Amazing what you're doing in this country, in in this moment of of, um, the way that New Zealand responded to that crisis, showed leadership all around the world and was a bright hope. Um, But my word of warning is just think of Poland because a few centuries ago, Poland was you. (laughs) That's the detail for today. I'm Kepki Masalamani. The detail is brought to you by newsroom.co.nz, made possible by the RNZ NZ On Air Innovation Fund. Hit the subscribe button to stay across the detail every day. And if you're on Apple, please leave us a rating as it helps other listeners find us. This episode was engineered by Blair Stagpool and produced by Alexia Russell. Matewa. Wa.